Hi, this is Paul. One of the things that's sort of bubbling around is Hermes, of all things. <laughs> and this, although John mentioned he talked about it in After Socrates, this part of his conversation with Jordan Peterson sort of caught everyone's attention. And I want to run through a bunch of things with respect to this. John and I might have a conversation about this coming. But I wanted to frame a number of things because um, this has caused a lot of question and a lot of debate. And I see this very much in the continuation of the recession of modernity. Now, I, I know when I say that, Jordan Peterson calls it a counter-enlightenment. I don't, I don't think that's the best way to frame it. When I say a recession of modernity, when, when you think of a recession, you think of a tide coming in and a tide receding. And I think modernity reached its high water mark at some point and it is receding. And as modernity recedes, well, as I mentioned earlier in the live stream today, it's, it's human beings, when they find something and then they discover something, they overreach. And then there's sort of an opponent processing, it gets pushed back. And so what we see happening is that modernity is getting pushed back. I'm not gonna play any of it, but it's, it's got a few views now, thanks to Jonathan's presence. But this, this conversation between Rafe Kelly and Jonathan Peugeot was absolutely tremendous. And you can see the recession of modernity very clearly as these two talk. And, and you can see it in this portion. I'm gonna play the portion that has Hermes in John Verveke and, and Jordan Peterson's conversation. So I had, a, uh, I, had um, I, I don't know if, how familiar you are with IFS, Internal Family Systems, where you do parts work. Um, it, it, so what's going on right now is this huge convergence within the psychotherapeutic domain of dialogical uh, models of the self, dialogical practices. And I was in the middle of doing parts work and I was working with a part. What would that mean practically? What were you doing exactly? So what happens is you, what you'll, when you notice that you're sort of possessed yeah, by, by yeah, something, yeah. you try and step back. Like your it. mother, your father, right. some ancestral spirit right. fragment. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you try and step back into, um, well, uh, Schwartz calls it the, uh, the the seat of the self, but I, I don't think that's quite right. But what you try is you try and step back into that more uh, sage-like awareness. Right, right. Level. So you're going deeper or higher. Yeah. 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 And then what you do is you try to, and you, you don't demonize this part. You try and enter into a dialogue. You realize that it is guarding something. This is, uh, it, it's, it's, it has some adaptive. Now, now let's add a little something. I'm going to play a little bit later on a clip from a conversation I had with John and someone else that I had a couple of years ago, where John's going to talk through some of this too, um, and, and he's going to get into some detail from it. And I think it's a really helpful clip to sort of understand some of the conversation going on around this. It is so interesting how, you know, this debate, Santa Claus isn't real. Well, how real is Hermes? Uh, Hermes seems real enough to provoke a very interesting debate and conversation and set of thoughts and anxieties that are going on now. That's pretty real. And in this clip that I'm going to play from my conversation with John a while ago, 
um, you know, he gets into the real, and I think that's listening to that. You know, a couple of years before is really helpful to sort of understand. He was reading Lerman at that point, and he brought that into the conversation. But part of the recession of modernity is the continual awareness that, despite the fact that we as physical human beings are wrapped in skin. There's a reality that we have that goes beyond our skin. There's a reality that we have that goes into the culture through relationships, through the things that we make, through the things that we do. There's a, even in the 1960s, there was a fascination with multiple personality disorder and there were movies about it. and People were very fascinated by the idea that one person could be divided in themselves through years of psychology, talk of psychotherapy, people have adopted in the culture all kinds of language about, let's say, the inner child. Um, people, let's say, who grew up with an alcoholic could be very attuned to the different personalities that might come up in a parent when they are sober, when they are drunk, when they are angry and drunk, when they are depressed. And you begin to see that although all of these people are wrapped within this skin and are one human being, there are all these dimensions to a, to a person. And, and we don't have too much trouble with that because we're speaking, as Jordan Peterson always says, psychologically. And we sort of have a sense that sort of the mind has within it these, um, these selves that aren't, then we use this, this word, this a term like integrated. And so you have all of that kind of conversation. Then we begin to, and as part of what we've been talking about over the last five years, are the realities of distributed selves, of other levels of participation that we, that we participate in. When we're at our job, we are performing the role of a worker or an employee or a boss. And when we're at home, we're a father or a son or a wife or a, a mother or a child. And, and we have all these different roles. But again, we don't really have any problem understanding that these are within us. And then if you're trying to deal with some things in your life, let's say um, some things, we'll use this word, these words have become common in our language, some things trigger you. You walked into a certain situation, you became angry all of a sudden and you don't know why. And so then maybe you go to a therapist and you want to explore that and you go back into your childhood. Maybe, maybe there's trauma. Trauma is sort of the new self-esteem now. And you go to, you do EMDR and you watch that little thing go back and forth. You say, well, how on earth is that supposed to help? And it helps. There's a, um, there's a retired therapist in my church who did a lot of EMDR work. And um, this, is a, this is a very, um, in many respects, a very conservative Christian evangelical woman. And she says it's just amazing the kind of progress people can make with that kind of therapy. And it's a little bit mystifying to us that this little thing with lights can really make a difference. If you don't know what that is, I'm sure you can look it up on the internet or on YouTube and find examples of it. And so then we tend to get the sense of that there are, within us, there are competing versions of ourselves. And, and, and there are, in some ways, even residual pieces of other family members. We've got parts of our father that live in us. And when a certain thing happens, something responds and we're like, oh my goodness, 
I'm my father. I, I see that sometimes in myself. I'm in a situation, usually because very good situations, not always. Something will come up and I'm, I find myself acting out something because this is, this is when I was a child, this got this. I mapped this into me without even any thought about it, and I sort of played these routines of my father. We don't know how to act in this extremely complex world, so what we kind of do is we, our parents act out within us. And so John is talking about this form of therapy whereby, in a sense, imaginatively, sort of transcend ourselves, and with the help of someone else, we begin to explore these these things in ourselves. And then the question is, well, what about when? Well, my father isn't in me in a physical sense. My father has been dead for over a decade now. But there are parts of my father that live inside of me still, and some of those are good parts, and some of them are, some of those are less good parts. And there are parts of my mother. She continues to be alive, but part of those are good and part of those aren't. And um, part of me lives in my children, both my sons and my daughters. Uh, my wife and I, who know each other, for, for decades now, we have parts of, there are parts of her that are mapped in my head. And you might say, well, that's not really parts of hers. Nothing physical in there. No, that's right. But we're not merely physical creatures. We are, we are, also, we are also ways of acting that are ourselves. And so you have all of this complexity. But what about other things? And cultures, and cultures are, in a sense, the way a much broader body gets inhabited within us, and we act out of our culture. You can see that in various cultures around the world. There's, um, you know, this this particular warrior dance that um, the, the, that the Maori do. There was a New Zealand basketball team, and I think they were playing the American all the American Olympic basketball team and before the game they were doing this whole it was dance and it was chant and it was facial movements and well what are they when they're doing that and and we know this with roles a, a fireman might have a family life and all of these things but when they go to a fire something else kicks in a soldier soldiers know this because of again trauma uh, when they hear something, something else kicks in. It's like another program begins to play. And so what we do is we, on one hand, begin to understand that we have all these programs within us that are that are often at play, but sometimes these programs are from other different people, and sometimes they're not from people like us. Sometimes they're from cultures. And, and even when we use things like racism or homophobe or some of these things, you, you sort of have a spirit that inhabits us. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit, but part of what happened in the Enlightenment was, well, a deep criticism and exclusion of, at least initially and for a very long time, everything but, let's say especially in the Protestant world, God and the Holy Spirit. Everything in the middle was excluded. In missiology about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they talked about the excluded middle, how Westerners would go to these countries and preach about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and then the people down here, and if they'd go to a place like Africa, the Africans had all of these spirits in between. That sort of unnerved the missionaries, and what might really unnerve them is if they read their Bible carefully, they'd be like, there's like these heavenly hosts and, you know, Michael Heiser, you can, you can look up his work because actually behind the text, you know, what about angels? What about demons? What about, 
Hasatan that shows up in the book of Job and God is, you know, kind of has a wager with, 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 with the Satan, the accuser. And, um, you know, Job sort of suffers because of it. What are we to make about these? How are we to regard these? And part of what's happening in the recession of, um, the recession of modernity is that I like to use the example of Mono Lake. Mono Lake is this Maybe I can find a YouTube of it because that's what YouTube is good at. Well, this is good. Here's a here's a time lapse of Mono Lake, and you can see the lake go up and down. And you can just Google Mono Lake, and you see these tufa formations that are that are all around, and and these things, these these strange formations are these strange formations are what's revealed when the water recedes, and and so. Part of that is what we see happening as, as we've sort of already had the high water mark of modernity and it's receding as we're sort of recalibrating. And again, mo a lot of this recalibration has come to us by virtue of science, cognitive science and psychology and robotics and all of this, that, that the, the, the water levels are changing. And when the water when Mono Lake gets less water, now it's a dead lake. It's not dead, actually. There's a lot of life in it. But um, when when the, the tributary streams aren't putting fresh water in it, the water level goes down and all of these tufa exhibits are revealed. And, and so here John is talking about doing this work of basically working with someone else to explore the various parts within himself. And that was the context for for what he described here. Functionality. Mm -hmm. uh, now this is my take, not humanize this part, you try and enter into a dialogue, you realize that it is guarding something. This is, uh, it, it's, it's, it has some adaptive functionality. Mm -hmm. uh, now this is my take, not necessarily his, but I think what, what you do is you bring sort of a, a, a mirror of agency or self-reflectiveness to this part. You act like a mindfulness mirror to it. You dialogue and you get it. You get to say, well, oh, well what, you try and get it to explicate its normativity, sure, what, sure, how, what's sure. actually governing and guiding it, and then you get to, and then you get, you, you can help it, it develop that. Yes, way. and you call it, and then you become Socratic with it. You call yeah, it to, yeah, but yeah. how much part are you following the the normativity that you're enforcing on me? Yep. And what will happen frequently is it will relax. And right, because it's being listened to. It's being listened to, yeah. and it's also realized that there's an opportunity here for. Now, now notice. Did you see what Jordan just did right there? It's being listened to. Well, what, what, what is it? Well, it's this. It's this part of me that's being listened to. Is it a part of me? Is it a part? Of, where did that part of me come from? Is this a part of me that I picked up somewhere from my father? Is this a part of me that I picked up from something else that's out there? For, for growth. Yeah. Of course, this overlaps with a lot so of. So Jung things. recommended naming those things. Oh, you do. You name yeah. them. You name yeah. them. Yeah. But okay. Pause there. Naming those things. Okay. Well, what would that do? Now, we've seen a lot of naming lately. So again, one of one that's quite recent, and now it's far enough back that we don't even pay much attention to it. Let's say woke. Before woke was a name of something, woke had another function in the language, but but after woke stuck. And then once woke stuck as a name, it had it had a degree of being in our relational landscape, in our cultural landscape. And and you go back in time and you see that once once things sort of get named, 
And this is what Donald Trump was a genius at in his run up to the 2016 election. He was naming people and crooked Hillary. Just, just two words, just put them together and say it a lot. And, and you sort of create something and, and you, can, you can win the presidency with, with this kind of thing. And on one hand, it's, it's from the playground. You learn this as a child, but you can, you can master this. Now, now we're talking about things outside, but what about things inside? And so Jung says, well, you should name these things. Well, why? Because then you can kind of get a handle on this. Now, anybody who's paying attention to, let's say, the biblical text will notice that, hmm, there's, Jesus runs into this demoniac who is living in a Gentile area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And his, his life is so bad that he's driven out of town. They, they try, he's probably, his family members are deeply worried about him. So they try to restrain him and they put chains on. He breaks the chains. Something's going on. And then you, you, creep, you, you go around psych units and um, different corners and you hear about people exhibiting superhuman strength and this way or that way. And you look at exorcisms and, you know, this is sort of a shadowy part of our world. Partly thanks, and I'm going to talk about this, thanks to the Enlightenment, it's sort of pushed over to the corners of our world. But um, inside, Jesus, Jesus meets him, and, and right away he says, Jesus, get away from me. I know who you are. And Jesus says, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And now Jesus didn't act like a psychotherapist and sit down and try to sort all of this stuff out. Jesus just basically tells him, you all have to go. We don't throw us into the abyss. Throw us into those pigs. Okay, go into the pigs, and the pigs all then go into the lake. The story's in the Bible. It's a very famous story. And, and I'm not saying that all of us who have pieces of us are possessed by a demon or a spirit or something like that, a, a malevolence. But we do experience that dividedness as malevolence often because what we want to have is, this is the word we use, integrity. We want all of our different pieces to be integrated and we don't want to be triggered and we don't want to suddenly become our father when someone says something or does something. We don't want to become our mother when someone says something or dumps something. Or maybe we do. But you begin to realize that the virtue and the excellence that your father or mother possessed and exhibited was something that they actually grew and it was an achievement. Maybe part of it was inherited. And, and over the last five years of doing this internet ministry, I've been able to realize a lot of the good that I've inherited from my father. And I didn't even know I was inheriting it. But, but usually when people go to a therapist, they're, they're looking for things that they have inherited from the outside that they wish to resolve in them. So now maybe they can be in a situation where something happens in a marriage and they don't fly off the handle and break things or yell or storm out or, or go get drunk or, or go get a hooker or something like that. Um, I mean, people do all sorts of things. So psychologically, this is part of the reason why one Churches will sometimes have therapists on site or on staff or, or send people to therapy because, well, you really don't want to keep playing 
you don't want that. You don't want your father to keep possessing you when your mother, when your wife says something or your child does something. And you don't, you want to resolve that part and you want to be conformed to a different norm. Something happened and, and, and you'll probably see a very union thing in this. And like I said, this is difficult for me to talk about, but I did talk about it already publicly and after Socrates. And I trust Hell of a thing for an introvert to do. Yes. So I was in the middle of one of these sessions and an archetypal presence came in and pushed aside all the parts and said, no, you're going to listen to me. And said, who are you? He said, I'm Hermes. Oh, yeah. The god of interpretation, the god of meaning making. This Did he have what... little winged slippers on in the whole bit? <laughs> well, no, he was, he was, he... Uh, messenger, winged messenger of the he, gods. He, yeah, he appeared, he, he very much had a presence of, of like, of a psycho pomp. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and when you mean it, when you say appeared, what was the phenomenology? What was the, happening? The phenomenology is like the phenomenology of the presence of a mind. Like I have a sense of, I have a mind sight into your um, huh? awareness. Now, what's interesting about these things, and this is again my take, not um, the IFS people, although I've talked to Mark Lewis at length about this, and uh, he thinks it's a good take. Um, I think of these entities as neither subjective nor objective. I think of them transjective. And I think yeah, Hermes right. is in the domain of relevance. And relevance is neither objective nor mm -hmm. subjective, but what binds them together. Right? Yeah, yeah, he, he's yeah. binding the inner and the outer, the upper. Now in that clip I'm going to play from my conversation with John from a couple years ago, he'll walk through that in a little bit more detail. I just wanted to note that here. In the lower yeah. and all of that together. And, and so it's the sense of a presence, but it's... It's like what Charles Stang talks about, the divine double. It's both you and not you. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the way conscience is, but it has a... It ha it, right. I mean, I, and so I have an ongoing dialogue with Hermes. It's very much... Um, is, this some, is this a presence that you visualize? How, how do you know of its appearance? I've had only one sort of vision. Uh, of what it. was the vision like? Uh, the vision was very much... Well, I've had... Uh, the vision was very much uh, what I later... So and now you can see Jordan go into scientist therapist mode and and now all of this is on video so in a sense I don't have to necessarily go back over this with with John if we talk about it maybe we will because I'm certainly probably put on a push on a few things that Jordan didn't but um, it's it's interesting this turn that happened in this conversation the amount of attention this turn has had at least in this little corner very much like sort of Micah L, the archangel, uh, which oh. is very interesting. Um, and then I've had one of uh, sort of Thoth from Egypt and uh, Hanuman uh, from the Vedic tradition, uh, as well as Hermes uh, the Greek, from the Greek tradition. Um, and they, 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 in the ancient literature, they're often seen as corresponding to each other in some fashion. Um, you understand, I'm treading on this very... Uh... Okay, so what was the consequence of the appearance of this superordinate spirit, arguably superordinate spirit, in the presence of this domain of chaos? Well, one, I mean, it, it made it very clear to me that it... Uh, I don't want to say it anymore. He wanted to make it very clear that um, uh, there was a dialogical relationship that needed to be developed and cultivated. Um, and it would be a relationship uh, by which I would cultivate something analogous to Socrates' demonium. That was the promise that was given. Oh, to me. oh, that's a good deal. 
Uh, I think so. Um, yeah. Well, it's dangerous, but so is everything else. Yeah, excellent things are rare, or we wouldn't pursue them, as Spinoza said. Uh, or we would all pursue them, as Spinoza said. Um, so I found Raff's work on ally work, um, and I've talked to a bunch of people that have, uh, you know, the kind of practices you can do uh, to enter into this. Anderson Todd, a friend of mine, mm -hmm. uh, very helpful around this. Um, and so what became very apparent was that, um, uh, that this demonium and the way I've internalized Socrates as a sage were very allied to each other because Socrates also portrayed himself as being metaxu, being between uh, the human and the divine. And then to, to get to the deep answer to this, this all started to psychodynamically integrate. Now, now part of what you're going to, you know, when he says to get to the deep answer of this, well, my, my, my question would be, well, what exactly are you looking for from this? I'll let him finish, and then we'll, I'll do a lot more talking. With the intellectual, philosophical realization of the Platonic proposal that human beings are supposed to always hold in tonos, creative tension, Nicholas of Cusa, Heraclitus, our finitude and our transcendence. Mm -hmm. If we only hold on to our finitude, we fall prey to servitude and despair. If we only hold on to our transcendence, we fall prey to hubris and inflation. But if we can hold the two together, if we are the metaxu between the beast and the god, right, uh, we can properly realize our humanity. And this is what Socrates sees himself. This is how he portrays Eros. This is how he portrays the task of Philosophia. And so for me, that Socratic spirit and Hermes as a psychological, dialogical presence have become integrated uh, together. Um, so that's, that's the answer. Well, that's quite a trip. Huh. Well, I mean... Yeah, it's quite a trip. Now, the video goes on for a while, and it's, the link is below, and you can certainly watch it. Now, he just, John just recently did a, a conversation with... Um, with Michael Souter and Michael Martin on the Regeneration podcast. It's a small podcast. I did an event with Michael Martin in Washington, D.C. last summer. Um, Michael is you know, very much a part of this corner, sort of over in the grail country corner of the corner, mostly. And so part of what's interesting about the corner is that there are sort of different, different corners of the corner have their own have their own particularities. And, and so John John goes into a little bit, this caught their attention, and so they had a, a conversation about this. And, and John mentioned that, even though he had mentioned this in After Socrates, his appearance with Jordan Peterson sort of provoked a response and a whole, a whole range of responses. Many of the responses John received were responses of care and love and concern because, well, I, I'll, I'll just tell you, let's, let's, let's talk about how, I'm playing with this thing. Um, let's talk about how, let's talk about mappings that are in us. I've used the example before, Sam Tiedemann, who is a biblical Unitarian, 
he came into sort of at the end of the OG phase of, of my own waves in this corner. And when Sam came in, somebody who had come in before him, who is no longer with us, Mary Cohen, who's very much a beloved woman, had conversation, many conversations with myself, with John, with Jonathan, you know, that all of our visibilities were, were lower and our availabilities were easier at that point. And then when Sam Tiedemann came in, someone who was principally not in subscription to the doctrine of the Trinity, whoosh, Mary, who was just the lovely, kindest, gentlest grandma, just went after Sam. And it was like, oh. And I remember the... I remember when Sam first contacted me. Actually, our, the first conversation I had with Sam, we tried to record, but his sound equipment was so bad it was unusable. So that one never got published. We published our first conversation. It was actually the second conversation we had. But I, I treaded very carefully with Sam at that point because for many of the things I talk about in my channel, I'm not hazarding a, a, a heresy trial or subscription problem within my own denomination and with, with within the... The groups to whom I am re I am accountable, but hey, the Trinity is uh yeah you, you subscribe to that if you're a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, and so it was fascinating to me how this very ancient thing, which was the the fight about Christology and the Trinity, sort of welled up through the centuries through the body of the Church and manifest itself in me. And, oh, I got to be careful with this, Sam, because very quickly, he wasn't just someone who would walk in and say shallow things against the Trinity. Sam was extremely well-read in Trinitarian controversies and in early church history and in a whole bunch of things. And he's extremely intelligent. He he works for major corporations, and he's, he's a very, very smart guy and a formidable guy to, to decide you want to argue with. But this thing came from below, Trinity defense mode came in. I, I remember um, in the, the Brad Bird movie, The Iron Giant, when the suddenly someone, someone start, you know, the tanks roll in. And of course, Hobart and the Iron Giant have sort of been playing together like a kid and a found puppy. And then the tanks roll in, this circuitry and the Iron Giant wells up and suddenly the Iron Giant becomes a killing machine and starts laying waste to armies, et cetera, et cetera. And so what Sam did in the corner was trigger the Trinitarian defense. And so you had a, a nice, lovely grandma, you know, suddenly like the Iron Giant start, you know, shooting at Sam. And, and over the last few years, some of what we've done is sort of I wouldn't say we let down our guard with respect to the Trinity. I haven't seen a lot of people switching sides on the Trinity or any mass scale defection from the Trinitarian Church over to the Unitarian Church, but we've all sort of figured out how to how to do that. It had a very similar reaction when I started talking about John Verveke, and I once I brought John into the mix, I was suddenly getting emails from some people who were following things saying, don't talk to that man, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, well, you know, I've also got my father in me, and, um, and my father in me said, no, do talk to that man, and do talk to Sam, and do talk to people that other people won't talk to because, because you are an emissary of Christ. And so... You have to figure out what to do. 
and you have to figure out how to go about this. So I, I told that to talk about old programs that come up. Now, an even older program than, let's say, Trinitarian defense in the church that sort of wells up like the Iron Giant, an even older program is against opening that door to the spirit world. And if, if, if John had simply said, well, you know, I was talking to these different parts of myself, and, and, these, and so this other part of myself, I mean, that would have all sounded very psychological, and people wouldn't have thought too much of it, because we're, we're used to that idea in psychology of, of having different personalities within us and different programs, and we have all of these metaphors that sort of work through those things. But opening up a spiritual door, and now suddenly, and I know when John and I talk about this, because this has been a constant thing that John and I have wrestled with in terms of when I read, well, talk about the spirit of finesse and how use the spirit of geometry to, in a sense, to deal with, let's say, God number one, and use the spirit of finesse to deal with God number two. You use the spirit of geometry to use to deal with inanimate things, things without personhood, use the spirit of finesse to deal with persons, not only persons, but personalities. So if you're a therapist and you're working through why, let's say, why I get angry when someone lets the dog in and they trample mud on the floor instead of just saying, oh, no, i got to clean up the mud. Now suddenly I'm ready to beat the dog within an inch of its life. No, that's not true. It's, <laughs> my father was never, ever like that as anybody who kind of has a sense of me and my father knows that. But a therapist would say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about your relationship with your father and let's talk about how you were a child and when the dog got let in and your father threw a fit and then your dog disappeared. And when you ask where your dog went, he made up some story about it being on a farm someplace. I've heard similar versions of that story many times from people. Their dogs disappear because the dog did something. Well, one of the things that wells up is, oh, the Witch of Endor. The law of Moses, because, well, you know, the Trinitarian fight, now we're talking, you know, third, fourth, fifth centuries. You're talking, you're talking law of Moses, Israelite laws with respect to witchcraft and dealing with spirits. And just like there's a Trinitarian defense system, there's an even older, deeper, I would argue, and I would argue very powerful defense system that have been built into many of us Christians, some Jews and Muslims too, but now we're going to, when I, I've got some slides I'm going to run through because we have to talk about the way the Enlightenment plays into this. Because part of the reason, let's say Michael Martin brings up what he does is, well, you get into medieval Christianity and, and, and some of those things get a little different. So we're going to have to talk about these dynamics. Now, maybe this is a good time for me to put in this little clip from my earlier conversation with John. So I'll make a pause here. Hopefully the sound won't be too, the sound levels won't be too different. So uh, I'd like to reply to, uh, there's a lot of threads there. Um, let's, let's, first of all, let's go back to the phenomenology of the uncanny 
the uncanny valley, the uncanny is when things are close enough that we sort of recognize them, but far enough away that we're going, I don't understand. And that's like, so when you get, when you get the, uh, when they're making the robots look like humans, when it's either clearly robot, right? People are okay, but it says it starts to look more and more like a human. That's when you hit the uncanny valley uh, because it's similar to a human, but it's still not a human. And you're, you're getting, right? You're getting, the uncanny is uh, the same sort of place where wonder and horror, it's that place that's on the horizon of intelligibility. Um, and shamans um, were perhaps the first individuals to cultivate practices that made, that took them to the uncanny. They, they were not liked by their communities generally. They're always suspected of doing nefarious things because they're uncanny. They're weird, even in their own community. They're odd people. That's what, they're the ones that know, like the classic right? Uh, so, uh, and I think the, the thing we need to know is um, that to me points to something even deeper that is, is I think at the, the core of what's going on here in this discussion. And I keep referring to this book, How God Becomes Real by Lerman, who's one of the great anthropologists right now. Um, and she talks about the reality of, of spirits and, uh, and that they're not real in the two, like, so our, our culture, our standard modernity, we have the two ways in which things can be real. The subject, they can be subjectively real. They can be objectively real. And we don't know how the heck they go together, but we'll just pretend that we'll, that's okay, right? And, and then what we, and what people like Heidegger and others have been pointing out uh, is the older, uh, the basically, at least in ancient Greece idea that, no, no, the, what grounds the possibility of them fitting together is the most real. And I, I, I tried to coin that term, the transjective. And Lerman basically argues that a lot of the, sacred phenomena are, trans, are, are real in a way I would call transjective. And give me a sec, because this ties into the very thing uh, I think we want to talk about, which is these, these entities don't exist by our assertion as romantic or by our reception of them from the world smashing into us objectively. Remember, object means to smash into. They exist dialogically. And Jesus even says that not to be and not to be insulting, but where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. There, right? This is the idea that these 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 entities are realized. And I know there's metaphysical questions here, and I'm happy to discuss them. But I'm trying to get right now the phenomenology and the functionality on the table. These entities are realized dialogically, right? You know, Jesus is only. And again, I'm not making a metaphysical claim here. But Jesus is only real to you if you pray to him, if you talk to him, if you let him into your life. Even You can even hear evangelical and fundamentalist language being used that way. And, and, and by the way, this is not specific to Christianity. This is Lerman's point. So this is a different sense of real. And if you'll allow me, there's, there's a transjective re realness. And it's very, very important because the transjective realness that is approached dialogically right, puts us on the horizon of intelligibility. And that's the place where we have to seriously play for transformation if we want to move from one world to another. That's the liminal zone. That's the roof of the cave, right? That place there, that, that's the cognitive roof of the cave. And what's happening in shamanism, right, is 
right? That the monological view of the mind is being directly challenged because the shaman is basically is that they're in a, they're in a dialogical identity with other entities, right? And theos to be possessed by the god, right? And they so they're challenging our monological mind. They're challenging our monophasic. This goes towards Capella's question about well, where's what's 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 a normal and what's an altered state of consciousness? I agree with David Lewis Williams that we should stop thinking of it as a binary. It's a continuum, right? And what we have is a certain state, and I think the state that we that we call normal consciousness is exactly the one that is highly coordinated with what you know what Taylor calls the buffered self, the monological self that is locked and closed within, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's protected by a barrier of completely coherent propositions that present, prevent any of this yucky stuff from getting into us in some ways. And the shaman is uncanny because it's in us deep enough, but it calls to us to the dialogical. It calls us to the transjective horizon of intelligibility. It challenges the idea that there is one state of consciousness that gives us access to reality. And so it, that, that, that is precisely uh, uh, the issue. Uh, I think that's at hand here is the degree to which this, this uncanny stuff could be appropriated and also therefore misappropriated in order to afford a, the kind of radical transformation. I wanna point out to you, Julian, that you're invoking of Whitehead, but that's that's deeply that's deeply Hebrew, the idea of an open future and that we co-create it with God, right? Whitehead is picking up on a very uh, a, something that has been deeply written into us by the Judeo-Christian heritage, and so no, like you're invoking it, right? But you're, what I'm saying is it still fits in with this this, and and the and the figure. One more thing, and then I'll shut up. There's a figure that sits there on the uncanny, doing all of this shamanic stuff in, in, and trying to call us into the future, not foretell the future, but that's the prophet, right? And the prophetic figure. And so one of the challenges, and, and I mean, this is almost, Paul knows this better than I do probably. Like when you do religious studies, you'll often get the priest versus the prophet, you know, schema as even understanding Christianity and the constant, and then there's the king, and then there's the weird triangle between the priest, the prophet, and the king. And somehow, and this is the this is the this is the thing, this is the uncanniness we have to get back, um, even as non-Christians. Jesus is somehow supposed to do all of those, right? And that's what's super uncanny about him. I'm reading David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, and everybody is commenting, and I totally understand why, because it makes the, it makes the, uh, sorry, the New Testament, makes the New Testament weird again, like really weird. It stops taming down the Greek text to our modern sensibility and throws it in your face in a way that's like, and I keep, uh, I'll read a passage, I do Lexio Divina, and I go, that's just weird. I don't know what that means. Like, and if I go back to the older versions, there, I, I feel like I was a little bit misled. I feel like I've been duped a bit. Because when I read these older translations, they're all, they, oh, they, they make sort of wonderful sense to a, you know, a, mo a modern mind that has gone through the enlightenment. But when you read it, the uncanniness. So I'm, I'm trying to suggest to you, Julian, this is a long argument, and I'm not a Christian, but I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be fair to the, well, first of all, I love Paul, and I, I want to be fair to him, and I want to be fair to the context of the conversation, which is, possible bridging. I'm trying to show you that outside of the rules and the dogma, 
in the figure of Jesus, you've got all of these things, you've got everything we've been talking about in the prophet, uh, intention with the priest, intention with the king, and somehow going beyond all of them in a way that's deeply uncanny. I'm suggesting to you, if you look to the uncanniness, and I don't mean that insulting, if you look to the uncanniness of Jesus, that might give us a possible bridge. I'll stop talking because I've said too much and I've probably been insulting and I was desperately trying not to be. So my first reaction, I, I haven't told John this, but um, I'm sure it wouldn't surprise him. My first reaction when I heard this was very much, oh, I need to be in prayer for John <laughs> because uh, doors can get opened. And part of that spiritual defense system that we have built into us, and this comes through you know, the Gospels and the stories of Jesus, is don't play with these things. Hmm. And, okay. But then you have the question, what are these things? And then you have questions of ontology. And it's interesting. One of the things that I think as modernity continues to recede, one of the things we're going to continue to wrestle with is the relationship between ontology and agency. So one of the continual conversations that John, Jonathan, and I keep coming around to is this question of ontology and agency. And, and how, in fact, how, in fact, do we define these things? And so in that little clip that I just played, you can see that, well, let's say, again, let's say if my father had been an angry man and my dog had disappeared in child, beloved dog had disappeared in childhood because the beloved dog came into the house and dragged mud into the house and my father threw a fit of rage. Well, what exactly is the ontology of my father? To what degree does a part of my father still live in me? How is that sort of called my father? And so these questions of ontology and also this spiritual defense system that many of us in the church possess. As I said before, they're sort of corners of the church. You can find them on the internet because the internet loves corners. And, and you'll find them in the Roman Catholics, of course, have, have maintained a, a vigorous, a vigorous tradition of exorcism. I'm sure there's some in the Orthodox Church too. Because of the way Protestantism has rolled out, there are, especially in some Pentecostal corners, um, traditions around exorcism and the like. And even in the Christian Reformed Church, even in our seminary, I remember, because that, of course, comes up, you get these seminary professors, and when you're a young seminarian, you think, well, they're going to answer everything. And the answer with respect to all of that is, you know, the, the kind of demon possession that we see in the Bible is, is rare but real. And, and so you, I'm going to use the supernatural category, even though I often downplay it. When you see, when you see someone know something they cannot know, or do something that human beings can't do, it's a sign of something. Now, I just finished recording my rough draft for Sunday where I talk about this dunamis and this virtue and all of this language. And, and of course, if you go back and you look at the ancient world, this is a power exerting itself. And, of course, with a, with a very different worldview and ontology behind it, the language and the imagination of how all of these, these, these things flow, flow. 
And so, yeah, when I hear a story like this, it's just, ooh, be careful, my friend. Please be careful. Because even with, you know, I worked foreign missions for a while with Haitians. And, yeah, they there were many things that happened there that would not happen in a church in North America. And of course, for some of you having heard stories here and there, it'll excite some of that, but it went far deeper than just the kinds of stories that you hear in Voodoo and Santeria and some of these other things. And, and that's where the slideshow that I'm going to be is not designed to sort of, and some of you are going to take it this way because that's the way the internet is, disarm the defense system that's deeply built into us as Christians and in some of the other religious traditions. I only talk about Christians because that's mine. But uh, help us to understand that while there is this defense system, there's also a fair amount of nuance and complexity that is around. So let's. So I made a little PowerPoint. I, I before I went to bed, I had to fold some laundry, and so I listened to to some of Michael Martin and the Regeneration podcast with John in it. And, and so then when I went to bed, I prayed for John and um, I prayed for his protection and I prayed for wisdom because John's my friend and I don't want to see him hurt. And, and I don't know. I don't know. And that's a big part of this is that I think a big piece of the Christian defense system with respect to these things is discretion is the better part of valor in many cases and so don't don't go looking for don't go looking for things that you don't understand and i think part of the reality of the spirit world is we know so little and we are so weak within it compared to spiritual beings for whom that is their native realm and so the constant attempt at interaction, if you looked at voodoo or santeria or brujaria in the Dominican Republic, um, I don't remember what I listened to recently, but someone said, you know, part of, part of what the spirits seek is instantiation. They, they seek to take on a body. And so the way it would work with a, with a, with a brujo would be, and, and most of the people that I knew in the Dominican Republic knew this quite well because many of them had lived in that sort of thing and then had left it for Christianity. And that's a very common story in terms of animistic, um, animistic cultures that part of the reason they, that Christianity is so desirable for them is that it offers an escape from the dominion of these spirits in their lives. So now this first slide I want to talk about how so John mentions the buffered self, both in the Regeneration podcast and, um, and then also in that conversation he had with me. And so a few slides later, we'll talk about the Enlightenment because that adds another layer to this. And again, I, I don't want to sound like a completely uneducated Protestant and not be aware of the fact that in different places of the church, because that's certainly the case now, when... Dominican Republic, Africa, Haiti. These things are dealt with in, in, in slightly different ways. Some things remain the same, some things vary. But there is the, 
the buffered self is a secular thing, and many Christians who are traditional enough um, are basically are unbuffered. One of the things that I've long thought about the Pentecostalism as it rose in the Azusa Street Mission and sort of as spreading all over the world is it is a it is sort of an outright rejection of modernity and some of those lines. So I entitled this slide "Conversations with Spirit Persons," and I I, I really wrestled with okay, actually how will this be? Because of course, when a Christian is praying to a triune God, he is he is having a conversation with a spirit person. Now, the word being is more complex when it comes to God for reasons that we've talked about at length, but the at least in a Trinitarian tradition, the word person is, is not as complex. There's this great moment in the, the Jonathan Peugeot-Rafe Kelly conversation when um, Rafe Kelly notes that the... Um, if you go from um, be a good man to be a good person, that a level of differentiation is removed. And John, Jonathan Peugeot sort of jumps on that, and it's a great conversation. But um, person is, is the right level for this. And, and it begins with a personal relationship with God. I, I summarize some of what happened in Chuck Colson's Born Again. And this is sort of my God number one and God number two. Part of what happens in the 20th century in places like the United States with the excluded middle is that God number one sort of disappears. God, God is reduced to God number two, sort of is reduced to a super thing in the sky, sort of is re reduced to another thing within creation. And, um, and that sort of sets up Sam Harris and, and the celebrity atheist to make the points that they make about it. And part of what happened, part of what I, I, I figured this out when I watched Jordan Peterson's conversation with Sam Harris, because when Jordan Peterson opens his laptop and starts reading, I recognized all of that from very early reformational period, recognizing that, oh, this is what I call God number one, God the arena. There's God the arena and God the agent. Now, the agent arena relationship is quite complex in itself. Um, arenas can become agentic and agents can become arenic, but um, this is sort of this differentiation that helps. And so Chuck Colson, in a sense, he's in deep trouble because, you know, Richard Nixon was a god for him and he worshiped Richard Nixon. And then he begins to realize that, well, um, Richard Nixon is a god to him, but the kind of god Richard Nixon is is not like Jesus Christ. Richard Nixon is more than happy to see Chuck Colson go to prison for him, and Richard Nixon isn't going to jail. And so poor Chuck Colson doesn't know what to do, and he has gotten involved with a group of evangelical Christians in Washington that in Chuck, Chuck Colson's torment, they offer him a personal relationship with God. And so he goes home to his wife and basically says, I've become a Christian. And she says, I thought we were Episcopalian. Well, what does that mean? Well, in some ways, their Episcopalianism was sort of the residue of God number one. And now Chuck Colson has an encounter with a living God. And you find this theme throughout the Bible. And of course, evangelicals pick this up. And you see this in the 1970s. Of course, Time Magazine um, Time magazine portrayed Jimmy Carter as the first born-again president, that born-again sort of went through the culture as, as 
the the Jesus movement sort of brings about another another little great awakening that ripples through the culture and ripples through the church. And so what happens in church after church, tradition after tradition, is people begin having a personal relationship with God. Well, what does that mean? That means the end of the buffered self, that um, that they are talking with God and walking with God, and then suddenly then you have sort of the spiritual practice movement that wells up with people like Dallas Willard, and now suddenly Brother Lawrence is being brought out. So now we have monastics being brought out into the Protestant world, and people are having a continuous conversation with Jesus all throughout the day. And this is part of what Lerman picks up, that what John is talking to about Lerman, that, well, I'm having a personal relationship with God. Now, in my experience as a minister, people frame this in lots of different ways. Um, one person always talks about the little voice. I always listen to the little voice. Other people talk about the Holy Spirit told me. And then skeptics will say, well, did he really, did you hear words? No, I didn't hear words. And you hear people talking about this all the time. And I, well, was it just a feeling? And how do we know it was true? And, and, and you have all of these things. But so again, the main thing is sort of this Christian defense that wells up against non-authorized spirits okay let's think about it that way god the father jesus the holy spirit they get credentials then you get so personal relationship with god my personal relationship with jesus my personal relationship with the holy spirit the holy spirit speaking to me this is common and this is part of what tm lerman has studied and has written about so um so 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 well in her books and leadings and promptings and words from the Holy Spirit. But then you go back into the Middle Ages and you go into Catholicism and, you know, you have apparitions of Mary, you have Lourdes, you have uh, Maria de Guadalupe, Maria de Altagracia, that's in the Dominican Republic. You know, Mary shows up and she's crying or something like this, or there's, there's blood or something like this is on a statue or something. And off it goes and you have appearances of angels and saints. And to my Protestant listeners, I know there are parts of the Reformed Church that are secessionists, and basically what they say, all of these things have stopped. And I'm not going to have that conversation now. I am not myself one. But there are those who make that argument, and you'll, you'll find them on the internet, and you can listen to those arguments, and you can listen to those debates if you want. I am not in that category. The Christian Reformed Church has always tried to be um, seen that as adiaphora. I know a story of someone who was in a more conservative secessionist Reformed Church, and he was a devoted Christian having a personal relationship with God, and in his prayer, he discovered he was speaking in tongues, and this was, he wasn't supposed to speak in tongues, and so he didn't know what to do, and what he did was join the Christian Reformed Church, where speaking in tongues is not a sign of the presence or absence of the Holy Spirit, but it is also something that, well, that's there it is. We're not going to pass too hard a judgment on. We'll talk about it. We'll discuss it. But it's open. So, but yeah, throughout history, you'll see, and in the Bible, you know, and it, look at the book of Revelation. This angel keeps showing up. And, you know, John mentioned in that thing about bronze. And I just reminded me, you know, the, the angel in Revelation. And part of the thing about angels are that whenever they show up, this is where I always sort of chuckled at touched by an angel so i talked a little bit in some of my islam videos about simple believers and common religion or folk religion and so american folk religion has touched by an angel and highway to heaven and these michael landon shows from 20 30 years ago 
a sort of common religion, but whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, if the angel shows up in their glory, uh, people lose their stuff and are fall flat on the ground and basically say, turn it down! Sometimes angels show up incognito, so you can just read all these stories of the angels. And then, of course, if you're Orthodox or Catholic, you kind of have a larger semi-canon where you have a tradition and you've got stories in there. And so the Christian tradition, Protestant and Catholic, is not quite as, is more porous than the defense system. Now, again, I said before, and most of you, many of you will ignore it, that none of nothing on this slide is supposed to set aside the defense system. The defense system is there for a reason. When the tanks and the battleships show up to, to shoot at the Iron Giant, the defense system shows up. Even a pet dog, if you do something to it, the defense system will show up. It's the fight or flight. And, and the tradition has this built in. My point in this is that there's always more nuance to this than what we might imagine. So God shows up through dreams, through visions, through voices, through signs, through prayer. This is just common life within the church. Now, depending on the how secular a particular area might be, people might be more or less covert and a little embarrassed by it. Maybe we'll only tell the pastor and a few close friends, but they'll sort of deny it in public. That's just sort of this um, secular suppression system that we've been under for a long time. Regularly, people in church will have conversations with dead relatives. They'll show up in their dreams or after they die. That's very common, even in Protestant churches. It varies by degree to different cultures. Um, some Christian traditions in Asia, some Asian churches will have not really put away ancestor worship or ancestor veneration or ancestor attention the way, let's say, you'll find, say, some Anglo churches do. You've got conversations with saints. You know, you've got, it showed up on Jonathan Jonathan Peugeot's uh, Ruslan interviews. So veneration of saints. I mean, all of this stuff that the Protestant Reformation sort of fought over. And you can read um, Encounters and D.W. Pasulka's work on aliens and you know, and, and what's interesting, because, of course, she her first book she wrote about purgatory. She's a devout Catholic and a scholar of religious history. And so part of what's going to continue to be questioned is, okay, well, what about these, what about spirits and aliens and entities and then psychedelics? So then again, we've got our defense system, and the defense system is there for a reason. And I will not criticize anyone for whom that defense system rises up because I want you to have that defense system. We should recognize what is within our tradition. We have a defense system, but we should talk about these things. One of the things that White House, White White House, Alfred North Whitehead gets mentioned, and one of the things that has been interesting and something that doesn't get a lot of attention is sort of the rise of process theology, or perhaps, let's say, the integration of process theology in all of this. What is process theology? Well, it sort of became the, the theological conversations downstream from Whitehead and his philosophy, recognizing that once you recognize that God isn't a thing like a lens cap is a thing, sorry, I still haven't gotten the, the old... Uh, 
phone stand out of the out of the out of the storeroom. That there are just like there are arenic aspects. You can see God as arenic. You can also see God as process. And and again, Christian language has this. Um, the Holy Spirit came. Jesus was in the room. We have all of these things, and and we're not talking about Jesus being in the room. We're talking about what has happened in worship, or what has happened in the community, or what has happened at the spirit level within the church. And this is a continued, I think, a continued critique of the super thing in the sky. And it's it's interesting how process theology is sort of employed to undercut um, shallow new atheism. And not even full-blown process theology, just recognition that you have this biblically in certain in certain metaphors, the right hand of God or or God's strong arm. You know, this is in our hymnody. This is all over the place. This is God as actor, the living God, all of this biblical language. So, you know, we had the reduction of God to God number two alone in the middle 20th century and the reawakening of that um, the reawakening of God number one, what we've seen in the recession of modernity and the continued recalibration of the Enlightenment, because the Enlightenment sort of was designed to put a lid on this. And if you read Reformation history, many parts, especially of the magisterial Protestants, were Catholics do miracles, not Protestants, it's sort of the roots of secessionism. But of course, the Anabaptists, they, <laughs> those early Anabaptists, yeah, things got wild. Um, you, of course, have the First Great Awakening with, with Jonathan Edwards and all of the kind of writing that he did with respect to these manifestations. And that's often what they're called in, in Christianity, manifestations. That's what they were called in the Dominican Republic often. But the, the Enlightenment, which, which basically looked at a lot of this stuff to try to wring out a degree of BS, the excitement over wow, look what we can do when we isolate variables and we take the personal out of it and we just reduce God number one to a bunch of laws of physics and systems. This is what happens with deism. Well, that scientific lab leak just sort of continues to run through the culture and then suddenly there are no spirits and, you know, suddenly you have no answer to why Jordan Peterson's wife no longer has cancer. And, and I, I have multiple examples of this. There was a podcast that Jordan went on in his early days, and he told the story of, um, let's call them manifestations, a haunting in a hotel room. And I had had some communication with a colleague of Jordan's that had shared that room with him and knew firsthand of everything that Jordan had said and added, in, in fact, even more details. And this person was a thoroughgoing materialist. And so I said to him, I said, what do you make of this? Strange things happen. Oh, okay. <laughs> Strange things happen. Agreed. The scientific lab leak sort of tried to clamp everything down. And of course, large sections of the church never bought it. And some sections of the church, like Pentecostalism, the charismatic openly rebelled. And then as in the post-colonial period, as, as now... Indigenous churches began spreading in the old colonial periods, basically displanting, displacing um, the old colonial transplant churches, just growing like fire. Well, you know, the scientific lab leak was just, you know, run out of town. 
a lot of what developed in this was the wisdom of habits and practices. And so it sort of gets transformed into different language, psychological language, and the wisdom of the spiritual finesse and the relational mode. And so when you listen to this, you know, some of these practices recognizing the multiplicity within us, and if you look at what John said in that little clip that I played, you have this relational mode. And, and as we begin to have a greater respect for process, what, what begins, you know, when you, when you listen to John and sort of the Verveke corner of the corner talk about practices, I remember when I first heard them talking about it, I'm thinking, I've heard this word in church for 20 years. Because you look at the work of Dallas Willard, former professor of, of philosophy at University of, U, of USC, um, wrote his dissertation on Husserl, was a phenomenologist, and also was a significant church leader, uh, wrote numerous books, wrote a really remarkable book on the Sermon on the Mount, um, was good friends with Richard Foster, uh, wrote Celebration of Disciplines, really brought practices into the Protestant realm. And so this is where we see sort of the, 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 the walls between Protestant and Catholic break down as Protestants are sort of borrowing practices from Catholics. And Catholics, of course, were looking over and they'd become sort of Protestant. And so they're more and more sort of coming together and able to talk with one another. And then just in terms of psychology, you know, you're shaped by, you're more shaped by your habits than your aspirations. Well, this is who I want to be. Oh, but I've got all this multiplicity within me and I'm going to have to work all of this through. Hence the renewal of interest in practice that, well, actually, if I practice these things, transformations, I can, I can, I can be changed. You have CBT, which is basically a practice in many respects. Um, you have all of these things that about, okay, so... If you want to be happier, smile more. No, no, no. I thought smile was the result of happiness. No, it's also the priming the pump of happiness if you smile more. All of these funny tricks and hacks that we find about human beings. And, and that's also sort of a coming to term was terms with time that I am, a, I am a being who has parts of my father and parts of my mother in me, not just my genetics, but, but also the... My parents mapped onto me not only in terms of my genetics, but also in terms of my practice and in terms of my formation and in terms of my mapping. So I not only got genetics from them, I also got mapping from them. And so some who are adopted didn't get generic genetics from their parents, but it's remarkable how much got mapped. And it's remarkable how much genetics is in there. It's sort of a diverse excellencies of nature versus nurture. Now I talked about the Christian safeguards and cautions strong tradition against divination and witchcraft um, ties, you know, tries to draw lines within the tradition and sort of, you know, so you have an authenticating thing. And so, of course, when you say Hermes, whoop, <laughs> that authenticating program is going to come right up and say, you're letting a Greek god in? <laughs> no, <laughs> well, we don't do that. Um, be careful with those Greek gods. Well, why? Well, yet when we, you know, Yet at the same time, there's been a secularization. It's, okay, the diamond of Socrates. Was it a demon? Of course, demon comes from diamond. And now we're sort of working through all of this language again and trying to figure it out. And for many people, it's just a hard line. Okay, I'm not going to fight you on that. I'm not going to fight you on that at all. 
because I've got that same defense mechanism in me and I've got that same caution in me and and I am I am going to stick with the authenticated spirits of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirits and the angels that are beneath him. <laughs> but of course, part of what we're dealing with in this little corner is the realization that this word spirit is a very broad word and that I can rightly say the spirit of my father is within me. That sounds really strange as a Protestant to say, but there it is. Well, what do I mean by spirit? And when we when we have an estuary meeting, there's a spirit of the conversation. Now, if I say it that way, nobody bats an eye. But if when Jonathan, like when Jonathan Mazzo said, well, there's an angel of the relationship, then everybody sort of shocks. And well, it's, it's, yeah. these are the things that we are sort of trying to figure out. And those of us who are Christians and bound within a tradition, you know, recognize those lines and stay try to stay within our lines. And so a strong tradition against divination and witchcraft. And this is an arena that we have limited agency and understanding. So we have a lot of respect and humility and even some fear. And there are implicit aspects of this. Availability of God to us. I mean, that's, that's one of the major things that, you know, you go into an animistic culture and you can have a relationship with the Most High God. You mean I don't have to sort of work my way up the hierarchy? Of course, that gets super complex with the ways that, let's say, Catholicism made inroads into certain animistic cultures. You look at voodoo. Um, you can't be a good, you can't be a good practitioner of voodoo if you're not a, in a sense, a Catholic. It's funny things. I'm not going to try and tease them all out here. I know this is going to drive comments, which is fine. Just leave your comment, say your piece. I'll read them. But availability of God to us, and God can send messengers, angels. And so in the Pentecostal tradition, you know, you'll see more and more angels and angelology and, and all of that. And you'll find that. And, you know, we've seen in this little corner, you've got corners of the corner that that play with things that other people in the corner look at and say, I'm not going there. And, you know, and, and I'm, I myself am a pretty cautious guy with respect to a lot of this stuff. You have responsiveness of God to us. Prayer. Again, people, does prayer change God? I don't know. I'm a Protestant. I stick to the Bible. Why does God have a conversation with Abraham in Genesis 18? Why does Jesus pray? Why does pray in the garden? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes it's a negotiation and they meet in between. Well, how, how can that work? I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. And when you get into this area, that's the first answer. There's a lot I don't know. The trustworthiness of God for us in an unseen realm. And so in many ways as a Christian, you say, okay, I will... I will be obedient to the Lord as he reveals himself in his word to me, and um, I, will, I will leave the rest with him. And so when you go into conversations with people in areas that you don't understand, you practice humility. And, um, but you also have your own practices. And of course, there's the church traditions in exorcism, in baptism, in prayer. Exorcisms were very much a part of baptism in the in the. I've told this story before on the channel when I, the area of the Dominican Republic where I worked was quite a ways from the capital city. And in the areas where we did baptisms, we always did, always did them in a river or in the ocean. And it was quite 
common when someone would go in for baptism, they would start to thrash. And then the pastor would grab them and dunk them again and dunk them again. And the pastor would keep dunking them. They wouldn't drown them. They would just dunk them momentarily. This would do it to adults. They're not doing it to children. They'd dunk them again until finally they would relax. And I, different missionaries had different takes on this. I know one of my missionary friends, when he'd see people do that, he'd get into the water and he'd grab the pastor. <laughs> he was a big guy. <laughs> he wouldn't allow any of that foolishness. The missionary who was my mentor said, no, you have to understand the spirits are in the water and the spirits are in them. And so their baptism is a war against the spirits. And baptism is going to baptize those spirits out of them. And so that pastor is going to take that person and they're going to keep going under the water until the Holy Spirit has fully and you know has has driven out all of those other spirits from them boy there's an opening to a whole another conversation and i'm sure after this there's going to be lots of conversation and lots of comments and people are going to be sending me notes and say, can we talk about that thing that you just said yeah we can we can talk about it but again there's so little that we know and there's so many cultures and and now with the recession of modernity in a secular culture Oh, wow, figuring this out is going to be quite something. It's going to be quite something. The Enlightenment as an expression of Christian caution with spiritual relationships. Yeah. Recession of modernity, a recalibration of the Enlightenment. That's what we are at now. And, and it's driven in many ways. It's by Jordan Peterson and by John Vervake. It's driven by science. For Peugeot and I, it's driven by other things. For me, it's driven by just watching people and watching the world and reading the Bible and trying to live in these two worlds. That's what drew me to Jordan Peterson because I was always dealing between the, the world of the Bible and the, and the world that we live in and trying to bridge that gap. John Stott wrote this book on preaching, Between Two Worlds. That's what a preacher does. I was trying to bridge these worlds. And I listened to Jordan Peterson. It's like, he's doing it in a different way. And he's doing it in a productive way. I've got to pay attention to that, which I have. Human communal spiritual opponent processing. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We tend to overreach, and it is by pushback that we recalibrate and correct this over time. Remember the process. That's what we're doing. Same could be said of the Protestant Reformation, abuses in medieval Catholicism, but also sometimes an overreach within reformational reactions. I, I've said for a long time at some point the protest has to end but you know whether or not people like to admit it the catholic and the orthodox have also been in their own modes of transformation the reformational force with caution and suspicion mostly of bs you know and so part of it is just lots of human things that we're worried about and part of it is our spiritual agencies that that you know, when we look at, I mean, well, part of the remarkable thing about the Mosaic Code is the complete, is the complete refusal to play with the sorts of levels of divination and such. And, and I think this is part of what provokes Kaufman in, you know, where I get this whole business of the metadivine realm, provokes Kaufman to say that Hebrew monotheism is revolutionary, not evolutionary. That, that something happened to the Hebrews that changed their story. They're of a piece of the ancient world, but they're starkly different. And they remained different. And they continue to remain different. And their ideas continued to flow out 
through Jesus into Christianity, out into the world, all the way up into this one pastor sitting at the corner of Florin Road in Sacramento. And we've had Christian wisdom and guidance throughout the years. And so we have multi-factor authentication in terms of someone comes into church and says, I think the Spirit is leading us to, okay. We're looking for multi-factor authentication on that. So you think the Spirit says this. They don't. We're going to look at, well, we test the spirits with the Word of God. We test the spirits with the Bible. Is this in keeping with the Bible? Other traditions will lend more to tradition. We test this against the tradition. Actually, Protestants do that a lot, too. They do it a whole lot. Just kind of don't talk it that way. Don't, 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 don't expose us too much, please, friends. We all have our, we all have our inconsistencies in our traditions. Accountability within the body of Christ. This is the arena of the Holy Spirit. So I think God is telling us this. Oh, okay. Are you sure that isn't just making you money or giving you importance or something that you ate or something psychological in you? We test this within each other. And and so, you know, when John talked to me in our conversation, said, I'd like to talk to you more about this. I said, Good, let's talk about it. Because this is what we do. This is what friends do. And and I, I deeply respect John. And um and and some of you might think I deeply respect him because he's he's brilliant and well studied and learned and, and all of that is true. But no, actually, my respect for John comes much more from my personal interactions with him, both on the camera and off the camera. And so, um, um, you know, part of part of what all of this estuary stuff is about is is it's through talking and relation that we build trust with each other and once we build trust with each other then suddenly we can talk about more difficult things and we can share disagreements and say i think this and you think this okay well what can i learn from our disagreement what can i learn from you what can i maybe borrow from you and improve the way i think and what can you borrow and improve the way you think so there's all of that so we test the spirits by wisdom within the tradition we have reverence and fear is expected even with God's messengers. Again, what happens with angels in the Bible? It's alarmingly consistent. And to me as a Protestant, that factors pretty heavily. I'm not saying that angels can't show up and turn the wattage down a little bit and make us a little less scared. But when biblical angels show up, The first thing out of their mouth is, do not be afraid. And I always want to say, well, if you don't want us to be afraid, don't come in here like that. <laughs> and maybe sometimes they don't. And the Holy Spirit, just look at the Holy Spirit. Look at, read the Gospel of John and all the ways that the Holy Spirit, all the jobs that the Holy Spirit has, conviction of sin, reminds us of everything that Jesus taught us. A still small voice. Look at, look at the story of Elijah on the mountain and a comforter, a divine comforter who... Um, who comes. And angels can be sent to comfort as well. I should make that comment too. Of course, you know, Elijah running from Jezebel and the angels and Jesus in the wilderness. Angels don't seem to scare Jesus, but um, they, they sure scare the rest of us. It's not quite, um, uh, what's her name? And Michael Landon, touched by an angel in all of those movies. The Holy Spirit is manifest in the church and in her ministry. And so all of these are our calibrations and guides and things. So, so when you're within a tradition, when you're within a Christian tradition, when you're, when you're within a church, you have all of this stuff. Now, I know there's going to be Pentecostals out there. They have their own tradition. The Catholics have their own tradition. I'm sure the Orthodox have their own tradition. The tradition of the Christian Reformed Church isn't terribly well developed with respect to many of these things. Again, that's partly because 
many within the Christian Reformed Church are are they they, they believe that this stuff has ceased. That's where secessionist. It's not seceding from the Union in terms of the American Civil War. It's that these things have ceased. Um, and yeah, I think that has a lot to do with the Enlightenment and and the old fights with Catholicism at the early days of the Protestant Reformation. So, but again, I've been a foreign missionary. I, I by no means count myself an expert in this. I don't, I don't know to what degree any human being can be an expert in this, and I actually don't think I would ever want to be an expert in this. I, I do not go seeking. I do not go seeking these things. I've. It, it's funny. <laughs> One thing you learn as a pastor is, is there's certain things you just don't go seeking, because. You've, you've either seen enough of it. It's like when, you know, some, some pastors can be gossips. And, you know, so-and-so slept with so-and-so and blew up his marriage and destroyed his ministry. And it's like, I don't really want to hear about it. I really don't want to hear about it. I've seen way too many of those stories. I know way too much about that. I, I, I find no joy in it. And so, whereas in some ways, this whole area has a degree of fascination for us because it's uncanny. And so I thought, you know, that's why I played that clip because that uncanny nature is, I thought John really put it together nicely in that, in that conversation that I had with him. But yeah, it's, it's also, I, the Lord has put it, the Lord has put plenty on my plate, but that doesn't mean John, if you're listening to this, which you probably will, that I don't want to talk to you. I'm more than happy to talk to you about this on camera and off camera. But, um, I know that this is sort of going around in the corner and as a pastor within the corner, I, I think I have a degree of responsibility to let people kind of know some of my thoughts. So as usual, when you want to know my thoughts, you have to listen to an hour plus video, but there it is. So I'm going to, I'm going to end this with, um, I'll see if that, um, I'll see if that branding of my, that song from my sister's funeral, because, uh, yeah, it's it's not VNA branding, but um, it means a lot to me, and and it it's sort of at the heart of this whole area for me. I, I got into this a little bit with my live stream with Ken Lowry today with Ken Lowry and Jordan Hall. What does it mean to have Jesus? Well, that's that's getting more and more complex and rich as we learn about cognitive science, as we learn about ourselves, as we learn about just how complex we are as modernity recedes and the enlightenment, let's call it the recalibration of the enlightenment, let's say it that. Not the counter-enlightenment, but let's say the recalibration of the enlightenment. So there's that. So yeah, there's gonna be comments to this one. I know there are.